I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I don't know if it's something else going on here. I'm, I keep hearing some high-pitched ringing, Brian. It doesn't sound like it's come from here, but I have no idea where it's from. If it's something else going on, but if someone hears and knows what it is, you can uh, take a look at it, but we'll do our best. Did anyone else hear that right now? Yeah, is that, is that pleasant? Is that calming to your nerves? Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> High-pitched ringing, yeah. Puts everyone at ease. Anyway, I'm not sure where it's coming from, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can fix it. Um, all right, Matthew chapter 23. We're going to look at this passage this morning and see how God gives hope for proud people. As we walk through this passage, we'll see this central truth that humble faith in Jesus is the only hope for proud people. Humble faith in Jesus is the only hope for proud people. Matthew 23, we'll read the first 12 verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not called to be rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Well, we've just introduced really a series of scathing indictments that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, it's hard to imagine a more scathing rebuke than Jesus gives here in this chapter. He calls them a series of names. He calls them hypocrites uh, six times. Five times he'll call them blind, blind men, blind guides, and even blind fools. And if that's not enough, he sort of ups the ante and he calls them snakes and vipers. So if they were not friends at the beginning of this conversation, it's certain that they are not at the end of the conversation. As we do this, we'll see that Jesus pronounces a series of seven woes. If you track through Scripture, seven uh, signifies wholeness or completeness. It signifies that something is, is in its totality presented. Jesus, uh, God creates the world in seven days. He measures the rhythm of Old Testament Israel in seven-year periods. And so when Jesus pronounces these seven woes, it's, it's a signal to us how complete the judgment is that's coming on him and how, how much he's condemning their sin. Well, in our last time together at the end of Matthew 22, Jesus cited in his sights on the Pharisees and scribes by asking them, what do you think about the Christ? And so now that he's cited things in, he brings the full artillery to bear of his prophetic ministry, and he begins condemning them for their pride. You see, we all come to God with all sorts of baggage and, and all sorts of sin, and yet the sin of these particular people is that they have a heart of pride. And we see that exposed here in the first 12 verses, and here Jesus lays the foundation for his case. In verse 2, he describes the scribes and Pharisees as sitting in Moses's seat. 
Now, first century synagogues typically have a, a stone seat at the front of the assembly hall in the synagogue, and this is where the teacher would sit. Now, they're not describing literally that this is Moses' seat, as in this is the seat that Moses himself sat in. Rather, the teaching seat is the seat of authority. And so to sit in Moses' seat is to claim the authority of Moses himself. It's to claim that they are Moses' legal heirs. Moses wrote the law, wrote it down, and they're here to be sure that it's followed. Now in our house, we have all sorts of games that we play, but, but one that, that we play in our house is one in which I get caught unawares. So at some random moment, I don't really know how they decide that they're going to do this, but I could be standing anywhere in our house, perhaps talking to Liz in the kitchen or something like this, and as I'm standing there, my two younger children will one, run, and they won't just tackle me. One will, will just stick herself to this leg, and the other will stick himself to this leg, and they'll grab on, and they'll force me to walk around the house with a child on each leg. Now, I can still do this, but I couldn't run, and I couldn't walk very fast. Now, it's a fun game, but what they're doing is they're adding a burden that makes it hard for me to walk. And eventually, I'm like, all right, that's enough, off. Because you can't walk forever with that sort of burden. And what Jesus says is that the Pharisees take God's law, and they use it like shackles. They burden, they bind people and force them to carry this heavy burden around. And what he says is that they are unreasonably heavy and even unnecessary burdens. They tie up people, verse 3. Heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Now, this is bad enough that they sort of pile on these burdens, but verse 4 tells us they aren't even willing to live by their own rules. They themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Sometimes when I'm trying to describe you know, the kind of people you want to put on your team or hire, I say something like, uh, we want to hire people that are willing to clean a toilet or empty a trash can, but also who have the, the discernment, the wisdom to know if that's the best way that they should spend their time. In other words, you want people who are willing to do the dirty work if the dirty work needs to be done. Pharisees are not willing to do any dirty work. They place a burden on others that they themselves aren't willing to carry. And so it's into this context, when Jesus came in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he's saying is the burden that's being placed on you by the spiritual, the religious leaders in your community, he comes and Jesus is the burden bearer. He bears the burden that we cannot bear and then we walk through life with him. He bears the burden of our sin, and through him we can walk in new life. Now the Pharisees, they're not like this. They love the place of honor and the best seats. Jesus says, verse 5, they do what they do to be seen by others. And then he uses this description that's kind of curious. He says, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, a phylactery isn't something that we're typically familiar with, but if you walk to the Old Testament, you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, there we have the, the Shema, the, the hearing of the law. And, and the Lord says, the Lord our God is one Lord, love God with all your heart. And then he says, teach your children everywhere you go, when you walk in the way, when you sit, when you lie down, you know, bind them to you. And so what would happen is observant Jews, and, and some still do this today, some Orthodox, strictly Orthodox Jews, would bind phylacteries to themselves. Now, these are simply uh, leather pouches, typically, that you'd put verses in, and you'd either bind them to your arms so that, that you would carry them with you that way, literally, or, or if you were, you know, I don't know, a little bit showy, you'd bind them to your forehead. You kind of wear this headband, and on the front of it is this 
this leather tube with the law inside it. Well, what do the Pharisees do? They want to make sure everyone knows that they carry God's word with them everywhere they go, so they carry a really big Bible on their forehead. They, they, they have this broad phylactery because they want everyone to see it. Now, it's almost comical when you think about picturing this, someone with this large leather tube on their forehead, but what they want people to know is, look at me, I'm someone who cares about the law. Uh, in, in the book of Numbers, God's people are instructed on certain religious garments to have tassels, Numbers 15. And so tassel, as you know, you see this at graduation time. You stick it on your, you know, your, your cap and then you switch it over when you graduate. Well, their tassels were particularly long. Now, that wasn't simply because they like long tassels. It was because wearing tassels is a way of showing that you care about the law. And they want everyone to see when they come, their tassels are really, really long. Well, what are they doing? They're doing this to be seen by others. They're going to whatever extent they can to show people, look at me, we care more about the law than you do. But Jesus sums things up in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you, he says, shall be your servant. But whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this idea is repeated throughout Scripture. In fact, it's in the passage that Elizabeth read for us this morning. Because it's the essence of what it takes to have a relationship with the Lord. If we lift ourselves up, God humbles us. If we humble ourselves before the Lord in our sin, God lifts us up in His grace. So the question for us becomes, where does this kind of humility come from? And then how would we build a culture that's humble like this? Well, Philippians 2 tells us the answer. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But this kind of mindset doesn't come from merely trying to be humble. Rather, Paul goes on and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So where does true humility come from? True humility comes from understanding who we are apart from Christ. And then from understanding who Christ became for us, and then understanding who we are in Christ. We are sinners justly condemned under the law of God apart from Christ. Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, became sin for us, so that he who knew no sin might become sin for us, so that we can become in him the righteousness of God. Through Christ, God declares us righteous, and we walk then in newness, of life. It's this understanding of who we are apart from Jesus and who we are in Christ. You see, you can act humble if you don't know Jesus, but you cannot be truly humble apart from Jesus. Because the essence of humility is confessing before a holy God that you're a sinner, unable to save or help yourself, and crying out to God for help, and then seeing that His Son, Jesus, is your only hope. That he came and he lived a perfectly humble life. And he got to the end of life and God looked at everything he had ever done and he said, that's good. But then, even though he was good, he died in the place of sinners, a sacrificial death, rose again so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and walk in this new life. But the essence of humility is turning from your sin and trusting Jesus. If you're here without Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust him?
Well then, how do we know what pride looks like? Or what are the manifestations that pride can take in our lives? And Jesus now condemns the Pharisees seven times, and in doing so, he describes for us what pride looks like. We'll pick up in verse 13 and read now through the end of the chapter. Verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what is a woe? Now, we think of, I don't know, you're riding a horse, whoa, or I don't know, whoa, look out. That's not what we're talking about here. W-O-E, woe, is a cry of deepest anguish. It's a cry of the deepest pain that you can imagine. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord is calling Isaiah into ministry, and Isaiah there has an amazing counter with, with God himself. 
And God gives him this vision, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, in, 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 in heaven, and his train fills the temple, the dwelling place there. And when Isaiah sees him, he sees the seraphim, the angels circling the throne of God, singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he sees him high and lifted up. And in this moment, when Isaiah sees God for who he is, he also sees himself. He understands who he is, and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the King. What happens is when he sees the character and glory of God revealed for all that it is, he understands how far short of this glory he falls. And in this moment, God smites him, he convicts him, and, and Isaiah cries out in pain, Woe is me. He's undone by what he sees. It's this cry of pain. As I was trying to imagine what, what this would look like in our lives today, I was uh, thrown back to a time almost 15 years ago, 14 and a half years ago, where I stood in a hospital waiting room. A few minutes before this, my dad had been playing basketball. I was in the gym, and he collapsed suddenly. And there were people, there were, there were medical people there playing as well, uh, and, and, and they tended to him right away. There was an automatic external defibrillator. They did everything they could. They, they drove him to this hospital, the closest hospital, and the doctor walked into this room. Doctors sometimes are real good at working on people and maybe don't do so well at the bedside manner thing, and he walked in and he just dumped it on us. He just said he didn't make it. And I was picturing the responses, my own response, the response of people in my family in this moment. My little sister is five, I'm 24 years old. My teenage brother running out of the room to be by himself, didn't know where he went. People just crying out, turning to each other in pain. It was a cry of pain. So when Jesus pronounces woe on the Pharisees, he's pronouncing the, most, the, the harshest, most painful kind of condemnation on them. It's a grievous, serious thing to do. It's a remarkable thing that a God who is full of grace and mercy would pronounce this kind of pain on someone. And he pronounces pain on them in particular for their hypocrisy. If you could sum up all of their sins in one thing, and this one kind of stands out above the rest, Jesus calls them six times hypocrites. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Now they aren't used to that being the synonym for their title, but that's how Jesus sees them. A hypocrite is someone who acts like one thing, but in reality is another. The term originally came from a Greek play where there was a character whose job was to, to be a fake within the play. Over time, the word has come to mean a morally fake person. According to verse 5, what Jesus teaches is that the essence of hypocrisy is to practice religion so that other people will see you. And then in verses 25 to 28, Jesus uses two illustrations to describe hypocrisy. Now imagine with me this morning that you came to our house and you asked for a, a drink of water and we handed you a cup. In this cup is cool, clear, refreshing water. You're hot, you're thirsty, and so you pick it up and, and you tip it up to your mouth and as it approaches your mouth, you look inside and you see. Now you don't know if that's Joseph's dried oatmeal or what's in the bottom of that cup, but you're not feeling real good about drinking out of this cup anymore. You see, that cup could look like the cleanest, best cup in the world on the outside. It could have the best water on the inside, but the minute you look down there and you're not sure what substance is stuck to the side of this cup, you ain't cool with drinking it anymore. 
And that's what Jesus says, that these Pharisees are like people who have polished themselves on the outside, but on the inside, they still got all this muck stuck inside. And then he uses a second illustration, and he says, they're like a beautiful grave. You've gotten the purest, whitest tombstone. You've written on it in the best writing, and yet underneath, there's no way of hiding that what happens is there's a body decaying and rotting. Spiritual pride is the source of hypocrisy. And the difficult truth is that at some level, we're all hypocrites. Now, some of us are worse hypocrites than others, but at some level, it's true of everyone that we all have some inner desire to be seen as better than we are. There's just no getting around this. But the true flaw, kind of the Achilles heel of Christians, is not just that we want to appear better than we are. It's a tendency sometimes to think then that we're morally superior to other people. And if there's anything that undermines grace, it's this. You see, it doesn't work like this, that inside the church, there are good church-going people. And then there are the other people out there. People who truly understand the gospel recognize that inside the church, they're a bunch of sinners in need of God's grace. And apart from His grace, we have no hope. And outside the walls, they're a bunch of sinners in need of God's grace. And apart from Him, they have no hope. The difference is that we know how much we need God, and it's our job to help people see how much they need Him too. We're all sinners. That's what we have in common. We all need God's grace. We're all sinners who fall, like Isaiah, far short of the glory of God. And people who need the grace of God, and apart from Christ, none of us has any hope. And you see, that's the second thing the Pharisees do. They twist God's grace. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus has been walking around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And as fast as Jesus grows around preaching this good news, the Pharisees are right behind him, keeping people out. Don't go, don't go there. Jesus welcomes people in, and they're like, nah, you can't get in. They're shutting the door of the kingdom, and this shutting is a firm, final closing. They're like, no one gets in here but us good people. They twist the definition of grace. And this is because they're in a different business. They're not building the kingdom of God. They're building personal kingdoms. Verse 15, they're all about their personal brand. They do make followers. They make proselytes, but they make proselytes for themselves. But if you follow any human being other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you will follow that person straight to hell. Verse 15, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I mean, the Pharisees are zealous missionaries. They'll travel across sea and land to make one disciple. But they're not making disciples of Jesus, they're making disciples of themselves. Well, how is it that this twisting of God's grace and building a personal kingdom can happen in our lives? Well, it better not be telling people, you can't come in. There have been times in the history of the church where churches didn't allow certain types of people in. This itself flies in the face of the gospel. But sometimes we can actually keep people out of God's kingdom by making it too easy for them to be in church. 
Now, you're like, wait a second, how, do, how does that work? But, but, but think about this for a minute. It's easy to want to build our kingdom, to want people to be in seats so much that we soft-pedal the gospel itself. I mean, I've sat in more services than I would like to remember looking for the gospel, looking for God, looking for some drip of truth, searching for it, longing for it, and not hearing it. It's no success for God's kingdom to have seats filled with people on their way to hell. I mean, we would rather have 50 people who know Christ, know his gospel, are saturated in it, and share the gospel with the people around them than to have 2,000 happy people entertained and who don't know Jesus. Because ultimately, it's not will you be found here, it's will you be found there. We battle against enemies we cannot see. It's an eternal, it's, it's a battle of eternal consequence. I mean, our primary goal for adults kids, teens, children, isn't to have fun and get a little Jesus dust. It's that people would know Christ and be known by Christ. And that in knowing him, he will rescue them. That they will be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Now look, I realize that we can also set up a false dichotomy, which means that if you have a lot of people, you're not doing it right. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me saying that. But I am saying that we just want God to do his work according to his word according to his gospel. People to respond to the clear word of God and the clear gospel of grace. Because that, not anything else, is our hope. That, not anything else, is our hope for ourselves and for the world around us. Now, Pharisees, they don't do that. They play loose with the truth. Verses 16 through 22. The rabbis in their tradition had established sort of a complicated hierarchy of oaths in order, in other words, if you swear by this, you're bound to do what you say, but if you swear by this, you're not bound. And so they had this tradition, if you swear by the temple, you don't have to keep your word, but if you swear by the gold in the temple, then that you have to keep, or if you swear by the altar, it doesn't really matter, but the gift that's on the altar, now that really matters. But Jesus says that God is true no matter what. Jesus has already confronted this idea in Matthew chapter 5. And here he says, Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. I mean, believers of all people should be the kind of people who can be trusted. I mean, keeping our commitments matters. Being people of our word matters because that reflects the true character of God. So if we find ourselves consistently saying things without following through, it's likely that we're missing the weight of Jesus' command. Now this teases itself out also in petty legalism. Verse 23, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now what they're doing is they're going to their herb cabinet, herb cabinet, their herb cabinet, and they're tithing from their herbs. But they're missing the weightier matters of the law. Now Jesus says this does matter, it's good to not neglect this, because Leviticus 27 tells people to tithe their vegetable produce, but they neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, imagine a congregation that cares for following church procedure, but treats one another with anything but mercy, grace, and love. Jesus says this is blindness. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel caring more for procedure and policy than for how we treat one another. 
And ultimately, this blindness comes from self-deception. It's a denial of our sin nature. The Lives of the Prophets is not a book that's well-known among us, but it's a first-century history of the prophets. It's not biblical, it's, but, but it's a historical document that records the fate of a number of the Old Testament prophets. The prophet Isaiah prophesied some seven centuries before Jesus, but his prophecies are some of the most beautiful and most memorable. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet Isaiah prophesied during the reign of a wicked king, King Manasseh, and for his beautiful prophecies, he was sawn in two. The prophet Jeremiah was stoned, Amos tortured and killed. How did the Israelites respond to God's messengers? They harshly rejected them, tortured, and killed them. Yet the Pharisees stand here today making monuments to the prophets and claiming if they'd been there, they wouldn't have done that. Yet they rejected John the Baptist and now Jesus Verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You're just like your daddy. They deny that they would have done the same thing, and yet they are doing the same thing. They are living in denial of their sinful hearts. Therefore, God's judgment is coming. Verse 35, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Verse 36, all these things will come upon this generation. A perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God will not, indeed, cannot allow one sin to go unpunished. As we walk through each of these manifestations of pride, each of them is a failure to understand and submit to God's word as God's word. The Pharisees and scribes have set up their own traditions in place of God's commands. What's the most dangerous kind of deception? Self-deception. Because when we deceive ourselves, it's impossible to tell truth from fiction. I mean, it's one thing to deceive someone else. But the thing with self-deception is it's so hard to tell where the lies stop because we're lying to ourselves. It's a church member more concerned about the service time than was sharing the gospel with her neighbor. It's a pastor more concerned about the church growing than about faithfulness to the word of God. It's a young person who rejects God's requirements for lifestyle or sexuality in favor of a culture's definition of those same things. It's a politically concerned person who believes that an election, not the spirit of God's work among the churches of God, is our nation's hope. It's a parent who believes that the academic success of her child is more important than whether that child knows Christ. It's a child who thinks that the acceptance of among her peers is more important than being found accepted in God's eyes through Christ. You see, self-deception takes many forms, but it's not unique to any of us. It's common to all of us. So how do we deal with this? The only hope is to look at ourselves in a mirror. And it's why James tells us that God's word is like a mirror. But what we do, James says, is we hold it up and we look at it, and we walk away and we forget what, our, what we're like. It's like we got something hanging out our nose. We look at it, we walk away, we forget that it's there. Now everyone else can see it, and it's embarrassing. But God, through his word, reveals to us not just who he is, but who we are and how much we need him. It's not enough to think we know the word. We must know the word. And when the word reveals Jesus as Lord to us, we must know Christ. We must worship God as God.
And then when the Word reveals things about our character that don't please God and shouldn't please us, we must repent of those things and seek to be conformed to the image of God. We ask God, God, would you shape us? God, would you form us? Would you conform us to your Word? The only cure for self-deception is to know what God Himself declares to be true. And if we do not know what God says, we will, by definition, be self-deceiving and self-deceived. We must know the Word. And in the end, we must remember this, that the only hope for proud people is Jesus Himself. As Jesus closes his teaching, he expands his condemnation from just the Pharisees and scribes to Jerusalem as a whole. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. But then we have some beautifully contrasting words in verse 39. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This quotation from Psalm 118 verse 26 is striking. Just a week earlier, Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and as he enters, the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have declared this to be true. Psalm 118 is a song sung at Passover, and the rabbis taught that this song is about the Messiah. The only hope for any sinner is to welcome this Messiah. Jesus has already taught what this looks like. Verse 9, See God as your Father. Verse 10, see Jesus as the one great teacher. You see, the only hope for humble people is to turn in humble, for proud people is to turn in humble repentance and faith to Jesus. Now, at the end of the day, what's the terrible thing about pride? Well, real quick to see it in other people and not recognize it in ourselves. That's why people, what you say, push your buttons. Because My problem is not that you're proud. My problem is I'm proud. And we have a real quick tendency to see pride in others, but not in ourselves. And in those moments, what God says is is take the word of God. Look into it. Don't ask how pride manifests itself in your husband's life. Don't ask how pride manifests itself in your kid's life lives. Ask, Lord, would you take your word and like a mirror, would you show me the manifestations of my pride? And then God, would you lead me to humble repentance in light of what you show me? So let's take a moment now and and, and do what God instructs us to do, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And when we do this, he says he will lift us up. Let's go to the Lord and talk to him now.